If you have your Bible with you this morning, we are in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31. It's a rather lengthy chapter, 55 verses in all. We're not going to read all 55 verses because that would take us a lot of time. So we're going to read the first three verses just to springboard us into the rest of the chapter. And then I'm going to run through the chapter uh, with you and we'll cover as many verses as we can in order to make sense of the reading. But we're going to just begin with the first three verses of Genesis chapter 31, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, And he heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob hath taken away all that was our father's, and of that which was our father's hath he gotten all this glory. And Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not toward him as before. And the Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers, and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his precious word to our hearts this morning. Now in the previous chapter, the previous episode, if you like, of our story, we saw how that Jacob was prepared to leave Laban's farm and to return back to his Homeland. He was willing to do that completely empty-handed. He was fed up dealing with Laban and his dishonesty. He was ready to go back to Canaan land. But Laban talked him into staying. And you remember that Jacob made an agreement with Laban. The agreement was very simple. Uh, Jacob would not receive wages from Laban for serving on his farm. But instead he would receive every newborn lamb that was speckled or striped. And so to make life difficult, Laban settled straight, uh, separated all the speckled and striped lambs and took them three days' journey away from Jacob. And Jacob was left with just solid-colored uh, livestock. But nevertheless, despite Laban's manipulation, despite his hopes, God prospered Jacob. And in six years, Jacob had increased his flock and became a very wealthy man. And now he is ready to leave Laban for the final time and to go home. Notice these verses that we just read. There is there a determination. Whilst God has been prospering Jacob, things had become increasingly difficult on Jacob's farm. Laban's sons felt that Jacob was taking their inheritance, that he was stealing their money, that he was, that he was somehow deceiving them. But no such thing was happening. Laban's wealth also had increased, but Jacob's wealth had increased all the more. And so Laban too was not overly pleased with Jacob's success and he began to feel resentful toward his young nephew and though he had made an agreement with Jacob, Laban was unhappy that despite his own best efforts that, uh, that Jacob was doing better than he was. And we read in verse 2 that Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban and behold it was not toward him as before. You know, there are times when God has to wake us up, when he has to help us see some things, to realize what's going on around us, and to make us think about where we are, and why we are where we are, and where we actually need to be. And sometimes, as with Laban, your face says it all. You know, sometimes your face is a giveaway. 
Your face is a signpost of your emotions. If we go to the early part of this book in Genesis 4, we read about Cain and Abel, how that God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's offering of works. And it says, and Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. It showed on his face. That was a look of rage. Uh, You read later in the Bible about uh, King Saul and David and how that David won the adulation of the crowds in Jerusalem following uh, the success over Goliath and how that Saul was downhearted at David's success and, and, and how he eyed David from that day forward. In other words, there was envy in his look. You read about Nebuchadnezzar as he is inquiring of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego why they did not bow to his idol. And at first he's very conciliatory and and very understanding. Uh, But then when they tell them that they won't bow to his idol, even though he gives them a second chance to do so, we read, Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was proud indignation in his face. Isaiah's hearers were told, Isaiah was told of his hearers that the show of their countenance doth witness against them. In other words, there were things written all over their faces. Willfulness, stubbornness, unwilling to yield to the word of God. Last week during the mission, there was, a, there was one person who was here. It was, you know, people think that you don't see and you don't know, but sometimes the preacher can tell without you telling them what's going on. And there was an individual, and all the way through the message, sat like this. What were they saying? I'm here, but I don't want to be here. And I'm not listening to anything you say. I don't want to hear that testimony. I don't want to hear that message. I'm here under duress. I'm here because I'm pleasing my mother or my father or a friend or a neighbor or whoever it was that brought them. The Bible says their face doth witness against them. And God told Ezekiel, fear not them, neither be dismissed or to be dismayed at their looks. It's concerning his congregation, fear not them, neither be dismayed at their looks. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. You know, all of you on a Sunday morning only have to look at one face. This is it. I'm sorry if it's a disappointment to you, but it's the only face I've got. But I have to look at all of your faces. And you know, most times they're happy and they're you know, quite... But every now and then you, have, you look out and there's a bless me if you can face. You know the bless me if you can face? They come in, it's a big long face. No matter what you say, pastor's not going to make any difference. I'm miserable when I come in and I intend to be miserable when I go out. Bless me if you can't, face. How different was the face of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, when he stood before the Sanhedrin and they looked upon his face as they were sentencing him to death and putting him to death. They said that the Bible says that his face was as the face of an angel. It was a serene face. It was a peaceful face. It was a contented face. What does your face say about you? If you're a Christian, what does your face say to your unsaved friends about you? What does your face say to your family about you? What does your face say to your neighbors about you or your colleagues about you? How does your countenance reflect your spirit? Well, in 
these opening verses, Laban's face told Jacob something that he needed to know. That Laban was no longer his friend. That he was no longer in favor with his employer. And that things were turning sour on the farm. And so God gave Jacob a very clear word in verse 3. He says to him, return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred and I will be with thee. Here, here we find that his education now on Laban's farm in Padanaram had come to a conclusion. He had now graduated. It was time to move on. And here's we, here we see how the will of God works. First of all, we discovered in the previous chapter there was an inward desire on Jacob's part to go back to Canaan. And then you combine that inward desire with outward circumstances. Laban and his sons were turned against Jacob. And then you receive a word from God to make known the pathway to Jacob, to make known God's pathway for Jacob. And that's God's will in, in a nutshell. That's how you know God's will in a nutshell. There's a desire. There's a circumstance. There's a word. And it's saying, this is the way. Walk you in it. Now, you've got to have all three of those ducks in a row. Let me say that to you. You may have a desire to do something, but you've got nothing from the Lord to sanction you doing it. If that's the case, then you're not in the will of the Lord. Or you may sense a word from the Lord, but find that you have no desire or that the circumstances of your life at that present point in time prohibit you from doing it, then clearly that's a misunderstanding on your part. You must have the clear direction of Scripture, a definite compunction of the heart, and permissible circumstances that enable you to be free to go and do what the Lord would have you to do. So there was determination. And then in verses 4 through 16, there's an explanation. You find there that having decided to leave home and go return to Canaan, that Jacob calls his wives in from the field and he tells them how that he had sought honestly to serve their father. He reminds them how their father had been dishonest with him many times, a fact that they could not deny but most importantly of all, he tells them how God has worked and is working in his life. And for the very first time in his married life, Jacob begins to exercise spiritual headship. Remember before he was flim-flam man? You know, they, he just did what they wanted him to do. You know, la, um, uh, Leah would have some children by him and then, and then the, the first handmaid had children by him and then uh, Leah had some more children and Silpa had children and finally Rachel. And they're, they're kind of pushing him around and they're, they're, they're basically, uh, they're, they're calling the shots. But now he's drawn a line in the sand. He says, listen, all of this is coming to an end. I'm going home and I want you to come with me and here's why I want you to come with me. And he explains to them what the Lord is doing in his life. Notice in verse 5, he speaks to them of the Lord's presence in his life. He said unto them, I see your father's countenance that it is not toward me as before, but the God of my father hath been with me. That's how he starts this. He says, your dad might not favor me, but God favors me. Your dad may not like me, but God loves me. And he's laid something on my heart and I have to do it. 
He speaks of the Lord's protection over his life. He, he says, verse 7, Your father hath deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but God suffered him not to hurt me. He says, the Lord has protected me in this home. And then, you know, friends, here's the thing. When you're in the will of God, the devil can only do what the Lord permits him to do. You realize that? When you're in the will of God, the devil can't do any more or any less than what God allows him to do. You find that in the book of Job. You know how that the devil comes before God in heaven and he fingers God's servant Job. And he suggests that Job is only serving the Lord because of material gain. That if somehow or other that God's blessing were removed from Job, if, uh, if the devil was allowed to affect his life, that Job would, would somehow or other curse God. And God allows the devil to do just that. And, and so we find that Job loses property and he loses livestock and he loses family. And ultimately he loses health. But Satan's challenge was, Hast thou not made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and the substance, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to the face. And the Lord says, Okay, Satan, go ahead, do your worst. But Satan can only do what God permitted him to do. You know, that's true about us. I remember a fellow many years ago, he used to come to my church and when I was preaching he used to come to the church where I was pastor and I was preaching and, and he was a guy who had dabbled in the occult and Satanism. And he said to me one Sunday, he says, you know, every Sunday when you preach, he says, I have an urge to kill you. I looked at him and I said, well, get to the end of the queue. He says, no, sir. He says, I have an urge to kill you. I says, well, why don't you kill me? He says, well, when I want to get up off my seat to go and throttle you, he says, something forces me, compels me to remain in my seat. And I can't get out of my chair. And I says, you know what that something is? I says, that's the power of God, friend. I says, because you can't touch me unless God allows you to touch me. And I says, greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world, he that's in you. You have no power over me. And that's the truth. Satan has no power over you except that God grants him some. And so uh, Jacob recognizes the Lord's protection on his life. He speaks of the Lord's prosperity in his life in verse 9. He says, Thus God hath taken away the cattle of your father and given them to me. But most of all, he speaks of God's promise in his life. Verse 13, he refers to that time when God appeared to him and said, I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest the pillar and where thou vowest a vow unto me. And he recounts his meeting with the Lord at Bethel and how he committed himself to the Lord there and the Lord gave him direction and how he vowed a vow in that place. And his wives needed to hear this. You see, by telling them all that was on his heart, by telling them all that God had done for him, he was showing them respect. He was showing them honor. And to this point, he really hadn't done that. And they needed to see that he respected them, that he honored them, that he loved them, that he wanted to include them in his dealings. You know what? And this is really surprising. They actually agreed with him. Look at verses 14 and 15. And Rachel and Leah answered and said unto him, Is there yet any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? They said, We have no reason to stay here. Are we not counted of him strangers? For he hath sold us 
and hath quite devoured also our money. Now what I like about this is at last Rachel and Leah have put their interpersonal conflict to bed. They both saw how they were used, how they were abused by their father. Laban had given them nothing of the wealth that Jacob had helped him him to accrue during his time there. You know, they were supposed to receive a dowry. A dowry dowry was a security, a financial security that was given by a man, a, a father to his daughters when they were getting married in order to give them something they could put away, something that they could keep for themselves, something that they would have to fall uh, back on. But Laban hadn't done that. And so they complained that they had been robbed of their inheritance. Solomon says in Proverbs, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Well, if that's true of a good man, what does it say about Laban? It tells us he was a bad man. And the truth is he treated his daughters as though they were his own personal property, as though they were slaves. He bartered with them. When Jacob came into the family circle, he bartered with them and of course married off Leah and then married off Rachel and did so in return for all these years of service. And so they agreed with Jacob's assessment of their father. But best of all, and I want you to get this ladies, Best of all, they bowed to God's will in their husband's life. Look at verse 16. They said, For all the riches which God hath taken from our father, that is ours and our children, now then, notice their words, whatsoever God hath said unto thee, do. I love that. I love that these women surrendered to God's will in their husband's life. Life. What a blessing it is to a man when his wife is completely committed to God's will for his life. You know, what a, what a glorious wife she is. What a ruby wife she is. She bows to the, to the Lord's direction. She surrenders herself to her husband's vision and leadership when he's earnestly seeking to follow the Lord. I wonder, I wonder dear woman, dear wife, if, if your husband should come home from this meeting today and say to you, listen, I believe God's called me to the mission field. We're going to go to the mission field. I wonder what your answer would be. He said, Oh, I don't think I'm going to them. Don't think, don't you think I'm leaving my mother and father and flying off to some far flung? You can put that idea out of your head. Oh, we're not gonna, we're not gonna live on a shoestring. You can forget that. You're not gonna give up your, your good job and, and a solid income and go and live by feet. No, we're not doing that. I, you know, sometimes that's what's said. But these women, they said, Whatever God has said unto thee, do. I love that. There's been a change in this home. There was determination. There was an explanation. And then in verses 17 through 21, there's a separation. Notice it says, Then Jacob rose up and set his sons and his wives upon camels. And he carried away all his cattle and all his goods which he had gotten, the cattle of its getting, which he had gotten in Padanaram, for to go to Isaac his father in the land of Canaan. And Laban went to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the images that were her father's. And Jacob stole away unawares, and Laban the Syrian, in that he told him not that he fled. So he fled with all that he had. And he rose up and passed over the river and set his face toward the Mount Gilead. Now verse 19 tells us that Laban went to shear 
his sheep. Now, when you read that in your Bible, don't think of it in Western farming practice terms. Because a sheep farmer in Northern Ireland or in these islands would largely shear his sheep in the context of his own farm. He would do it on his own property, usually. But this was not, was the, this was not the practice in ancient times. What they have here was a sheep shearing festival. When it says he went off to shear his sheep, he was going to a festival. He was effectively going to the equivalent of the Balmoral show in Padanaram, okay? He was heading off to where all the farmers get together and they all have a good old chat and a natter and they catch up and they figure out how the business is going and so on. And there's a bit of a feast and and several days of feasting and drinking and, and merriment and so on. And so whilst Laban is off enjoying this sheep shearing festival, Jacob thinks to himself, this would be a good time to leave. And so he gets his family together and he takes that opportunity and he's heading back to Isaac, his father in the land of Canaan. And then Rachel, as she's going out the door, she lifts her father's household idol and sneaks it into her luggage and sets off. We'll say more about that in a moment. But I want you to notice in verse 21, it says, So he fled with all that he had and he rose up and passed over the river. I want you to stop there for a moment. He rose up and passed over the river. You know, we refer to the Israelites as Hebrews. And the word Hebrews quite literally means those from beyond the river. Those from beyond the river or those who have crossed the river. And so uh, that's essentially what you see here. Jacob is crossing a river. Look with me in the book of Joshua for a moment. Joshua chapter 24, a familiar passage to many of us. Joshua chapter 24, we get to the end of the account of Joshua's conquest into the land of Canaan and how that he had crossed over the river Jordan. And we read in chapter 24 and verses 2 and 3, Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, of Israel, Your father dwelt on the other side of the flood, on the other side of the river in old time. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood, or the other side of the river, and led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his seed, and gave him Isaac. Verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord, And serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt. And serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river. Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's what Jacob was saying. He's saying, we're leaving behind Padanaram. We're leaving behind the gods of this world. We're leaving behind the religion of Laban. We're crossing the river. We're heading toward Isaac. We're going back to Canaan land. We're going to the land of promise. Notice where he's going. He's going, it says, toward the Mount Gilead. Gilead is the place of perpetual fountain. He says, we're heading to the promised land. 
Oh, listen. That's where we're heading. That's where we're heading. There's this hymn we used to sing many years ago. I, I don't, haven't heard this hymn sung in years. Oh, the blessed contemplation. Uh, when the trouble here I sigh, I have a home beyond the river that I'll enter by and by. Do you remember that hymn? Most of you don't look like you remember that hymn. I'm going to have to teach you that hymn. I have a home beyond the river. I have a, I have a mansion bright and fair. I have a home beyond the river. I will dwell with Jesus there. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I've got a home beyond the river. This, this world, this world of lobbing and idols and grasping and greedy and, and, sky, and scheming and, and manipulating and using people. This is all behind me. I'm going to cross the river. I've got a home there that's bright and fair. And that day he became a true Hebrew. One who was from beyond the river. Friends, when we wholeheartedly pursue the will of God and leave behind us the things of this world to cross the river, when we burn the bridges behind us, we're heading to God's place of blessing. And let me say to you, no one ever yet lost out, no one ever lost out by following God's will for their lives. No one. God is no man's debtor. And if you pursue God's will in your life, let me tell you something. It won't end up to where God owes you. It always ends up where you owe God, that you'll admit his blessing and his grace and his goodness and his provision. There was determination in this chapter. There's an explanation in this chapter. There's separation in this chapter, but there's confrontation in this chapter. Look at verse 22. And it was told Laban on the third day, that's the third day of the feast, that Jacob was fled. And he took his brethren with him and pursued after him seven days' journey. And they overtook him in the Mount Gilead. And God came to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said unto him, Take heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. And then Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mount. And Laban with his brethren pitched in the Mount of Gilead. Now let me say to you this morning that any time you commit to doing God's will, any time you say, I'm going to follow the Lord and I'm going to do what's right and I'm going to pursue what God has for me, any time you do that, you can expect opposition. I think the devil's going to just let you go and do what you want to do. That you just go ahead and follow the Lord and not in any way try to prevent you from doing that. He's not going to worry about that. It's not the way this thing works. Alvin was so incensed. So incensed that Jacob determined to break away from him and to move back to the land of promise. He was so incensed by this. He traveled over 300 miles in the course of seven days to catch up with Jacob. And you see the words there in verse 22, the word fled. And in verse 23, the words pursued and overtook. And the phrase pitched his tent in verse 25. These are all military terms. He isn't just coming there to, to say goodbye. He's coming there to do damage to Jacob. There's tension in the air. And he's coming determined to kill Jacob. But God intervenes and he says, you don't say a word to him, good or bad. 
So Laban confronts Jacob with two inquiries. Look at verse 26. He says, what hast thou done? What hast thou done that thou hast stolen away unawares to me? And the word unawares is literally my heart. He says, you've taken my heart. He says, here's what you've done, Jacob. You've broken my heart. You've taken my daughters. You've taken my grandchildren. You've left in the night. I didn't even have a chance to kiss them goodbye. I didn't even have the chance to throw a party for them. Give him a big send-off. Do you really think Laban was wanting to do that? Do you really think this man who wasted his daughter's inheritance, who sold them off as effectively slaves to another man so as to advantage himself, do you really think he was the kind of man who would have cared whether or not he had opportunity to have a send-off for his daughters? Do you believe that? You know, Donald Barnhouse says this on this point. He says, our big words have meaning only when they're backed up by little gestures. Listen to what he says. Our big words only have meaning when they're backed up with little gestures. The daily word of love, the daily act of unselfishness or deed of kindness speaks much louder than the protestation of affection without meaning, meaning or rendered meaningless by selfishness. That's a long way of saying this. Actions speak louder than words. If you love somebody, show them that you love them. When he says, Jacob, you've broke my heart. You've took my kids. You've took my grandkids. You could have at least let me say goodbye to them. You could have at least let me give them a kiss and a hug. You could have at least let me have a, have a send-off for them. But actions speak louder than words, Laban. And you had mistreated your daughters and abused your daughters and used your daughters. And in verse 29, Laban admits that God himself had prevented him from doing Jacob harm. So the question is, why had he come? Look at verse 29. He says, It's in the power of my hand to do you hurt, but the God of your father speak unto me yesternight, last night, saying, Take thy heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. And now, though thou wouldest needs be gone, because thou sore longest after thy father's house, yet wherefore hast thou stolen my gods? Now I want you to think about this. Laban has to explain why he's pursued Jacob. He's no longer going to kill Jacob because God told him not to. But he has to have a reason why he's caught up with him. He says, well, here's the reason. You've stolen my gods. Now, I want you to think about this. Think about this. A God that cannot protect himself. A God that cannot protect his followers is not a God worth following. Hear what I'm saying to you. This is the folly of fundamentalist Islam. This is what proves to me that Islam is a false religion and Allah is a false God. Because one little offense and what happens? One little offense and the Muslim is up in arms. They're highly offended. They're threatening death 
to protect the good character of Allah. One little cartoon of the prophet and they're out in the streets protesting and breathing death and threatenings against the cartoonists and crying blasphemy against their God. But listen, surely Allah, if he is such a great God, is able to protect himself. See, I don't need to defend my God. God's perfectly capable of defending himself. He doesn't need a puny man to fight his corner. He can fight his own corner. And is Allah such a weak and useless God that he cannot come to his own defense? Here's the the words of one writer on this thought. He said, gods indeed. Mighty gods. Gods that could be stolen. Gods that could be packed up like old pots and pans and stuffed in a bag. Gods that could be bounced and jostled over 300 miles without word or whimper. That's the God of Laban. A couple of years ago, Hazel and I were traveling through uh, the Cotswolds. We, we stopped off in the little town there on, uh, on, the, in the, on our way through the Cotswolds. And uh, as we wandered around the town looking for somewhere to eat lunch, we happened upon a craft fair. And in this craft fair, there was a, a lady who had a table full of glassware that she was selling. That You know, the kind of thing you hang in your window that's, uh, that's, that's painted so as the sun shines through the colors. And so she was selling this kind of thing. But I noticed on her table that there were scripture verses. She had different little scripture verses. And I couldn't help myself. And I said, I had to ask her, was she a Christian? And uh, she said she was. And in the course of conversation, it became clear that she was a charismatic. And nevertheless, you know, she's a very sincere woman. She was desirous to, you know, get God's word out and whatever. And so I know I'm not going to condemn her for that. And so... You know, we chatted with her for a little while. Hazel found a little item, item she wanted to buy, a little ornament she wanted to buy. And the lady says, well, you know, I'll, I'll, certainly you can have this one, but I think I've got a better one in my store cupboard. She says, if you wait a moment, she says, I'll go and get it. So she went off and, and she got this better uh, item and brought it back. And then she had another couple of little pieces of glass, just tiny little pieces of glass. And one of them was a, was a cross just a a cross that was painted into a piece of glass and she handed it to me and she said, now, she says, you can keep that in your pocket and she says, and and you'll know, you'll know when you rub that piece of glass that the Lord is with you. Let me tell you something, I don't need a piece of glass to know the Lord is with me. I've got the word of God to tell me the Lord is with me. What would have happened if my little piece of glass broke or cracked or fell out of my pocket, or was pickpocketed. I'm not relying on a cross, or a crucifix, or some piece of religious jewelry, or some item that I can stick on my mantelpiece to remind me of my God and his faithfulness. His word reminds me of of his faithfulness. And the one thing that you cannot do, you can steal my little glass cross, you can steal my, my scripture ornaments, you can steal whatever you want in my home, but you can't steal Christ from my heart. Now these idols that were used in Padanaram were were used in various ways. One of the ways in which they were used was to divine, to determine the future. Another way they were used was to to, uh, help with worship in the home. But why would Rachel steal them? Was Rachel so tied to idolatry that she couldn't live without Laban's gods? 
Well, the clue is in the context. Remember, she complained that Laban had wasted her dowry, that he had robbed her of her inheritance. And one of the things these idols did is in terms of their usefulness or their function was to be a, was to be a indication of an inheritance. If you had an inheritance coming to someone, you would give them an idol. And just like that lady gave me that little cross and says, well, this will always remind you. No, they would have gave you a little household idol. And said, this will remind you that you have an inheritance. So as she's going out the door, she's thinking to herself, he didn't even give me my inheritance. And she grabs the household idol. And she stuffs it into her baggage. And she's taking it as a reminder to herself and to her father that he owes her money. So Laban comes and he's looking for this idol. And to pacify him, Jacob, who knows nothing about it, says yes, that he's free to search the entire camp until he finds it. And so he does. He begins searching in Jacob's tent and then Bilhah's tent and then Silpah's tent and then Leah's tent. And finally he comes to Rachel's tent. And when he goes inside Rachel's tent, his daughter excuses herself from not sitting, standing up when he enters because she's experiencing her monthly cycle. Look in verse 34. It says, now Rachel had taken the images and put them in the camel's furniture. That's basically in her suitcase. And sat upon them. And Laban searched all the tent but found them not. And she said to her father, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise up before thee. For the custom of women, that's her monthly cycle, is upon me. And he searched but found not the images. Why did he not ask her to stand up why did he not ask her to give him access to the camel's pouch upon which she was sitting here's why because in his wildest imagination Laban could not envisage a woman in Rachel's condition who was considered at that time to be unclean and contaminated when experiencing menstruation he could not envisage the idea that she would so disregard the gods of her family that she would actually sit upon those gods whilst going through that physical change. And what Rachel's actions did, or what Rachel's actions were, was they were calculated to be an act of utter contempt for Laban and for the gods of Mesopotamia And she's saying effectively, I have no faith. No faith in you as my father. And no faith in the gods that you serve. So Laban returned home empty handed. Now watch Jacob's irritation in verse 36. There was determination. There was explanation. There was separation. There was confrontation. Verse 36. And Jacob was wroth and chewed with Laban. Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that thou hast so hotly pursued after me? Whereas thou hast searched all my stuff, what hast thou found of all thy host household stuff? Set it here before my brethren and thy brethren, that we may that they may judge betwixt us both. 
This twenty years have I been with thee. Thy ewes and thy she-goats have not cast their young. The rams of thy flock have I not eaten. That which was torn of beasts I brought not unto thee. I bear the loss of it. Of my hand is thy required, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was in the day of thy drought consumed me, and the frost by night and my sleep departed from mine eyes. Thus have I been twenty years in thy house. I served thee fourteen years for thy two daughters, six years for thy cattle. Thou hast changed my wages ten times. Except the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me. Surely thou hast sent me away now empty. God hath seen mine infliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked thee yesterday night. (laughs) Have you ever been accused in the wrong? How's it feel? Someone accuses you in the wrong. I remember a missionary many years ago. I'd actually helped him get a lot of support. And later on, uh, through no fault of mine, he lost some of that support. And he came and accused me of actually asking churches to drop him as a missionary. And you know, I I was really upset about that. Because I had done no such thing. I've never done that. We'd never do it. And you know, you, you feel angry in that moment. And that's exactly how Jacob felt. He, he was wroth, the Bible says. He, he was burning. He chewed Laban. That is, he tore into him. He was fuming. 20 years of hurt. 20 years of injustice. 20 years of wrong. All this pent up anger suddenly came spilling out and he let him have it. He speaks of his own personal innocence. And he accuses Laban of being a liar and a cheat. Look, he says, there's changed my wages 10 times. Ten in scriptures, the number of completeness. Genesis 1, we read ten times that God said. In Exodus, we have ten plagues and ten commandments. The Passover lamb was chosen on the tenth day. Nebuchadnezzar found Daniel and his friends ten times better than his court magicians. Jacob was telling Laban, you're an absolute fraudster. You're an absolute liar. You're a complete cheat. So finally, in the last part of this chapter, there's a liberation. From verses 43 to 55, there's a determination, an explanation, a separation, a confrontation, an irritation, and a liberation. Laban's only response to Jacob's charges was that these were his daughters and his grandchildren, that he loved them, that he would do them no harm. And then he calls upon Jacob to make a covenant with him. To cut a covenant with him. To make an agreement with him. To establish a witness between them both that would draw a line under the whole matter. So Jacob agreed. He has his servants gather stones and they, uh, and they mark the place of their agreement. And those in verse 49, they give that place a name. They call it Mizpah. They call it an Mizpah. Therefore the name of it was called Gilead and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between me and thee. When we are absent one from another. Have you ever heard that word, Mizpah? Sometimes you see it in Christian bookstores. You see a little bracelet has Mizpah on it, or a necklace has Mizpah, or a cup, or a picture might have Mizpah on it. Years ago, I used to work with a man who was a Christian. He came in one day, he was very, very excited. His wife had given him a little necklace. It said Miz, M I Z, on it. He says, uh, my wife gave me this necklace. He says, it comes in two halves. Mine says Miz and hers says Pa. 
Mizpah. I was only a new Christian. I didn't know what Mizpah meant. I says, oh, right, what does that mean? He says, well, it's, it's a blessing. He says, it means the, the Lord watched between us while we're apart. He says, so while we wear these necklaces, we ask the Lord to watch between us while we're apart. Sounds awfully romantic. And so you have little trinkets and ornaments and necklaces and wall decorations, even Christian organizations and missions that refer to themselves by the name Mizpah. But I want you to understand, Mizpah is not a name of blessing. It's a word of warning. These two men were not having some kind of bromance here. They were at war with each other. They were fighting the bit out. And what they're doing in in, in naming this place Mizpah is calling upon God to keep each one true to the covenant that they're going to make with each other. Essentially what they're saying is, because I don't trust you, may God watch your every move behind my back. Now if my wife gave me a Mizpah necklace, (laughs) I wouldn't be boasting about it. (laughs) It would suggest she didn't trust me. She said, the Lord Lord watch you. Behind my back. And Laban made Jacob agree. Now you've got to love this. As you read down this text. Laban makes Jacob to agree. uh, To take no more wives. (laughs) How many wives did Jacob want in the first place? He only wanted one. He's got four. Why did he get four? Because of Laban. He would have happily have left with one. But Laban was the one who made him marry all of these wives or caused him to marry all of these wives. It was Laban's meddling that got him into this pickle. And then he made made him promise in verses 51 down through verse 52 that he would never return again as if if he would. And so this, this heap of stones that they've called Mizpah, essentially what it is, it's a boundary stone. They set a boundary between them. If you ever have a chance and you get to a little village in the, lake, in the Peak District, if you're on holiday in the Peak District, there's a little village well worth a visit. It's called Eim, E-Y-A-M, pronounced Eim. And it's renowned historically for being the plague village. And uh, during the, the Great Plague in London back in the 1600s, 1665, the only other place in England that contracted the plague was this little village as a consequence of a tailor making a trip to London and bringing some cloth back to the village which had some fleas in the cloth which were infected with the plague which subsequently bit him and members of his family and the plague ripped through the village and the village was decimated, absolutely decimated. It's a fascinating place to visit. It's actually a great place of Christian witness. The pastor there at the time saved uh, the rest of Britain really from contracting this uh, this illness uh, by effectively isolating the village, quarantining everybody in the village uh, and being willing to even lay down his own life if necessary to prevent others from catching it. Tremendous story. But in the midst of this story, you can go around all the houses and you can see where the burial places are of these people buried in their own back gardens from the 1600s. Because so many of them were dying. They didn't even have time uh, to organize proper funerals. And they, they couldn't meet in the church building. A bit like COVID. They weren't allowed into the church building. They had to meet in the open air and, and, and so on. But you, you, get to the, you get to the edge of the village. And you walk out about a mile toward, uh, toward Chatsworth House. 
and you head out about a mile and you get out to there and there's a big stone, a big granite stone, sits in the middle of the field and there are five holes in that stone and uh, the villagers would come out and they would travel that one mile or so and they would drop coins into that stone and they would pour vinegar over the coins so as to sterilize them and then the servants of the, uh, of the Earl of Devonshire would come up from Chatsworth House they would stop at that stone. They would remove the coins as payment for food and they would leave food there for the villagers. Now here's the thing. The villagers were never allowed to go any further than that stone. It's called the boundary stone. And the servants of the Earl of Devonshire could never come any closer to the village than that stone. It was a boundary stone. Mizpah is not a blessing. It's a boundary stone. Laban says to Jacob, this is as far as you come near me. And Jacob says to Laban, this is as far as I want to get to you. Mizpah, giving that to your wife. What is wrong with you? Read your Bible, man. But for Jacob, I guess it wasn't just a boundary stone. In reality, it was a blessing. Because he makes a sacrifice to the Lord there. And he's free. Laban kisses his loved ones. And heads off. And that's the last we hear of him. He passes out of Jacob's life. He passes off the page of scripture. He's never referred to again. But let me say this to you as we close. Can I encourage you today. Wherever you are in your Christian walk. To pursue God's will for your life no matter what. And don't let the lavens of this world keep you from it. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Let me tell you what God's will for you this morning is if you're not a Christian. The Bible makes it very clear. The Bible says that God is willing to have all men to be saved and to come on to the knowledge of the truth. God's will for you this morning is that you should trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. You should acknowledge your sin. Turn from it. Admit that Christ died for you, was buried and rose again and put your trust in what Jesus did and believe in him for eternal life and God will grant you forgiveness and grant you a heavenly home. That's God's will for you today. Now if you go back home and you say, you know what, I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. Somebody might say to you, you don't want to do that. Oh, you don't want to, you don't want to go down to that Baptist church. You know, if you go down there, you'll be as mad as the rest of them. You want to read that Bible? Reading the Bible makes you go mad. Oh, you don't want to be one of them holy rulers. No, you're happy as you are. You see what happens? As soon as you determine to do the will of God, the old devil will give you 101 reasons why you can't or shouldn't do it. You do what God calls you to do. God has called you to be saved. You be saved. Don't you let the devil or anyone else keep you back from it. You're here this morning as a Christian. You say there's something I should do. I believe God has laid something on my heart. There's a particular field of service that I need to give myself to. There's a particular thing I need to attend to. Maybe I need to go and speak to someone and and say I'm sorry. I need to do that. But I, I keep putting that off and putting it off and putting it off. Do it. Don't let the devil keep you from it. Whatever God's will is for you to do, do it. No matter how hard other people try to keep you from it. And friend, let me say this to you. You'll never lose out. You'll never lose out. By pursuing the will of God for your life. There may be opposition. There may even be confrontation. 
But if you do what you know the Lord will have you to do, you'll ultimately know liberty and you'll know blessing. After 20 years, Jacob finally did the right thing. He spent 20 years in the school of hard knocks. He spent 20 years of tough experience. And yes, he certainly messed up along the way. But he got there in the end. And that's what counts. Now, what about you this morning? What would God have you to do? We're going to rise and sing our closing hymn this morning. Be thou my vision.